All right, good morning, everyone. Um, It has been a minute since I've been standing up here and teaching, so I'm glad to be back. Uh, I appreciate Peter taking um, the the bulk, all of it, really, for the summer. Uh, This is what I'm learning about my life right now, is, is I had, I graduated college almost 10 years ago, and I think the period of my life that's not dominated by school is over. Um, so in my house, there are four people in four different schools now. So uh, my weeks are dominated by the school calendar. None of them have the same breaks. Um, and so the summer has become the only time for our family to do anything. So I appreciate Peter giving me a break to go spend some time with my family and um, go around. So Frankie, actually, for those of you who are wondering who the fourth is, Frankie's just started uh, going back to school to get a counseling degree at the Baptist Seminary here. So really excited for her, really affecting my life and figuring out just what new rhythms look like. So, uh, But glad to be back. I have appreciated this series that Peter has been doing as well, looking at the person of Christ and the promises about him in the Old Testament. Um, I just, I love that topic, um, both because I love uh, digging into the promises of the Old Testament and seeing um, how they really fill in the full picture of what God has done. But probably even more because I just, I think at this point, the person of Christ is so important for us to be reminded of. In the midst of a world that feels um, full of division and full of distraction, right? There's a lot of topics for us to fight about, a lot of topics for us to disagree on, a lot of of what are probably trivial things for us to overemphasize and spend our time in. Um, I just love Peter's uh, heart to look back at Christ, to remember the foundation of our faith, to remember what forms us, what unites us, what everything else is built on, I think is more important than than ever. And so I just have enjoyed this series. And and what I'd like to do for the next probably couple weeks is kind of look at some of those promises, look at some of the concepts that Peter's been pulling out of the Old Testament, and just think through a little more, how do those concepts affect my life on Monday morning? Right? And Peter's been doing some of that. He's been drawing some of those ideas all the way out. But, but this is just my bent, probably. I just want to spend extra time looking and saying, how does that impact me today? How do the Old Testament promises about the chosen son or God's anointed one trace all the way through the New Testament to come and affect the way that I go to work? The way that I pursue a career and how much I should prioritize that? The way that I relate to my family, the way that I uh, think about marriage, the way I think about what my hope is, what I'm working towards in retirement, towards my life. What am I building? What am I spending my time and my resources? Um, And how do I think about those things? So how do the promises and the concepts in the Old Testament show up in my present day context? Um, So just going to pick a couple ideas and just try to trace those all the way through. Uh, today, what I want to look at is, is some of the ideas that Peter has been showing us in Psalm 2. Right? You remember Psalm 2, the anointed one is promised. And what we're going to want to look at especially is that this anointed one is promised a heritage. That all of the nations will be made his heritage. Psalm 2, verse 8. And we'll go look at that. And how does that concept, the idea of the anointed one in his heritage or his inheritance affect the way that I'm living my daily life. So but before we get into um, looking at those passages, just want to back up and think for a second. What comes to mind when you think of the idea of an inheritance? 
Just what do you think of just as that natural concept, right? Probably the most obvious idea would just be some big bank account number, right? Just, just a large trust fund would be an inheritance. That'd be the most obvious thing to think about. I mean, it might be something more tangible. It might be some sort of property or a house that's some sort of value, um, either monetary value or just personal value, right? Maybe it's your grandparents' house you remember growing to visit or, or your parents' house that you grew up in, and it's got um, some ideas of what life could look like if you live there or you could go visit there, right? These are things that we might think of when we're thinking we're going to receive an inheritance one day. Or maybe if you're more like me, you think of inheritance as something other people have, Right? My parents like to tell us that, that they're spending our inheritance. So I don't expect to get a whole lot <laughs> coming to me. Um, and, and if that's the case for you, then, then the idea of an inheritance may not seem very relevant to your life. Um, but I would argue it actually is. You just maybe don't realize it. I think of inheritance in, in like a Jane Austen novel. right? Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. And, and the stories are shaped around the fortunes that people have. Right? There are some characters who have large fortunes coming to them, and, and that affects the way that they get to live. Right? They get to, to go through life, and everyone wants to, be, um, wants to know them, wants to spend time with them. People are always trying to marry them. That drives a lot of the drama in the story. Right? The fact that they have an inheritance, a fortune coming to them, affects everything about the way that they get to live today because they know they're taken care of. And then a lot of the characters don't have that sort of fortune. They don't have an inheritance, and they live life very differently. They relate to difficulties, to the thoughts of the future differently, because they know unless they can work something out, they don't have anything coming for them. What they do now, the opportunities they have, the relationships or marriages or work that they do today is what determines their future hope. And I think with that kind of idea, we can see how the idea of an inheritance Having one or not having one affects the way that you live every day. Americans mostly probably think of being self-made people. And so we have an emphasis on working hard now to provide for ourselves later. We don't tend to rely on an inheritance coming because we expect we have to make it for ourselves. And that is the way that we're living every day. So as we get into this passage, I want to think, how does the idea that God has promised us an anointed one with a heritage that we are hoping in still today, how should that affect the way that we live come Monday morning? So let's look in this passage as we get into Psalm 2. We'll start here, and then we're going to trace this through a couple passages in the New Testament. Let's just read some of these verses so we can remember. I know Peter's been talking to these through a few weeks, but uh, just read this and put this before us. Starting in verse 1, why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my Holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Let's stop there. There's so much in this passage. There's so many things going on with, with the idea of son that Peter's drawn out, with, with who the nations are and why they're rebelling against God's anointed and God's God himself. What I want to dig in today is just the, the framing of this promise that God has given his anointed who will rule over the nations and all the nations, all the ends of the earth will be his heritage. And if the, the immediate context of that we know is, is the Davidic kingdom. Or we don't actually know who wrote Psalm 2 or exactly what time period it was written in. But we do know whoever wrote it was thinking of the promises to David. Right? And, and this sort of, of picture of a king coming and the nations being given his heritage we see begin to happen in David's lifetime. Right? You remember the beginning when David comes onto the scene fighting Goliath. What's going on in that moment? Right, the Philistines, this, this sort of warriors, warrior nation next to them, had come in and raided Israel. And, and they were beginning to try to mount a defense. And what we see in David is he defeats their champion and then they run out. But, but that was a common occurrence in the beginning of David's life, that there were these nations around, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, that would come and they would do raiding parties into the nation. And, and there, was, there was a need for defense and for security that we see by the end of David's life. You read that all of those nations are subdued. They're defeated. They're no longer coming in and raiding the kingdom because they know there's a king in Israel now. And he has defeated them in war and he has stopped the raiding parties. Because the king has come, the nations now, those immediate contexts, those, those few nations right around them, were no longer raging and defeating God's people. And think what it would have been like to live in Israel at that time, right? Because you've been given a king, a good king who's come and given you prosperity, right? He's given your nation a measure of respect, a measure of glory, that, that you can be proud of living in this land now. You're no longer just being defeated every, every year by these raiding parties, right? You've got security. You can build and, and plant your harvest and not worry about what's going to happen your, to your crops, to your products, to your family, to your kids. Because of the promised king, the anointed one, who's given this heritage and dominion over the nations around, all the people in the land benefit as well. That's the picture we're taking out of Psalm 2. And we know that Psalm 2 is not only about David. Right? As Peter showed us, Jesus steps into this promise. We know that David's line doesn't fulfill this promise. Right? He does pretty well. His son, there's even more prosperity under King Solomon. But then after that, everything sort of falls apart. Right? The nation goes into decline. There's, there's more wars. And by the end of, of several generations, the nation is defeated again. They're overwhelmed by uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so the promise of Psalm 2, this picture, what God has promised, does not happen through the kings in Israel and Judah. But the promise still stands. And when Jesus comes on the scene, that's what people were expecting him to do. Right? He, remember, he steps into the promises of David. Right? He's, he's descended, if you read the genealogies, descended from the line of David. He's born in Bethlehem, just like David. 
when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. People recognize that's what David did. That, that's, he is stepping into the promises of God's anointed. They would have read all the promises. They'd have read Psalm 2 and said, is this the one who's coming to fulfill these promises? And they ask him that question. Right? Remember, they ask Jesus, will you at this time restore the nation to Israel? And what did they think he was going to do? Right? They thought he was going to defeat the Romans, the occupying force, that he was going to lead a rebellion and he was going to conquer and he was going to become a king, defeating the nations just like David. And we know that when Jesus came the first time, it was not to establish an earthly kingdom like David. He was coming first to gather a nation, gather a people to himself. Right? If he'd come to conquer the first time, none of us would have made the cut. But the promise still stands. He's coming back. And when he comes back, this promise will be fulfilled in full. All of the nations will either submit to him or be destroyed with the rod of iron. This picture is still informing the way that we hope in Christ today. This is giving us an idea of what it means to hope in a king. And that's probably a weird concept for some of us modern Westerners, right? Like, we, we move past kings. We don't do kings anymore. Um, and, and I'm not saying we need to go back to a monarchy here in this time. But, um, but I do think we need to be able to picture what these promises are. And, and I would actually advocate reading fiction for this purpose. This is a little bit of an aside, maybe a little bit of my hobby horse. But I love fiction, um, not just as entertainment. I think fiction is really valuable, And this is one of the main reasons, because the Bible is given to us not just in a bunch of instructions. A lot of the Bible is stories. And I think we maybe don't exercise the muscles that we need to read those stories very well all the time. Right? If if you've just come from, um, you're just reading nonfiction or just reading how-to books or things like that, when you come to a story like the narrative of David, you might say, that's a good story, but, but what do I do with it? And reading good fiction is going to teach us how to learn to hope in, to see themes, to see um, what God intends us to see and be moved by in all of the narrative parts of the Bible. A good example of it, of it for our, this morning is, is Lord of the Rings, actually. One of my favorite books. Um, but, but actually, I think one of Tolkien's reasons in writing Lord of the Rings was to give us a picture, give modern Westerners a picture of what it would be like to hope in a king. Right? Actually, the third book is called Return of the King. And there's, there's three, two and a half maybe, kings in the story that are given to picture what comes with a king. And when you walk into two of the kingdoms, there's, there's a king and a steward. And they're leading their land, but their lands are suffering because the kings are not leading well. One of the kings is fearful and is, is, doesn't believe he has the strength it takes to, to fight the enemies, the, the darkness coming over the land. And the other king, though he's very competent, though he works hard to care for his people, has looked into the enemy's plans and has despaired, believed that he could not overcome this. But there's a third king, the one that returns in the final book. And when he comes, he sets the land right. He gives courage to the people, courage to the fearful king to go and fight the enemies and leads them to victory. And then he returns to his own kingdom and he not only leads them to victory and inspires them to fight, but he brings healing and he brings prosperity after 
that battle is over. And these are pictures of what it's like when a good king returns, how his land and all the people in it are benefited by the king. They're blessed through the king. And, and these are pictures of what Psalm 2 is promising. This is what we should hope in. And this is what the New Testament picks up to teach us to hope in. I've been struck recently reading through some of the epistles on, on how often Paul talks about all the good that we receive in Christ. You see that phrase? He blessed us in Christ. He saved us in Christ. His kindness comes in Christ. And, and what does that mean? I think, it's, I think it's drawing on this idea of being blessed through a king. Let, let's look at just a couple examples here. This is Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Paul is giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1 says it this way, starting in verse 11, "...in him we have obtained an inheritance." If you're reading NIV, I know it says chosen, but stick with me. We're going to get to inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You see, all that's promised here. We're going to receive an inheritance. We're going to be transferred into the kingdom of Christ. And what do you picture that's going to look like? When you read language like this in the New Testament, where God is promising to bless us, not only now, but in the future, when Christ returns, right? the Spirit seals us for an inheritance until we receive it. So we've received forgiveness in life now, but there's still something more coming. What do you picture that more is going to be? What comes to mind when you think of the heaven or the new earth? Do, do you think mostly of, of just being with Christ himself? And that would be a good thing, to think that is the thing we see first here, is that we will be with Christ. But, but what does that look like? Is it, is it kind of just you and Christ and kind of just a white background other than that? Right? Maybe, I won't say in the clouds. That would be too stereotypical. But, but maybe you're in like a, a white coffee shop. Right? Like you and Christ just spending time together. Maybe all of your relatives and the people that you've lost there together. And you're just, the thing about it is you're just with Christ. And that's, that's the thing. That's it. And that's kind of all that you picture. I had a roommate in college who when we talked about what the new heavens and the earth would be like, I think he thought it would kind of just be like an eternal praise choir. And we would just all be gathered around Christ, singing about how great Christ is for all of eternity. And listen, I don't want to say that's bad. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good in that picture. Maybe not me having to sing for eternity. I don't know that that's going to honor Christ fully. Um, but my question is, is that what the Bible wants us to picture? Is that the images that we have been given to hope in, or do we have more than that? 
When you think of what's coming, what your inheritance is going to be, do you have a fully biblical picture of all that's promised in eternity? And I think it matters. So let's see. When, when we go to picture what God has said, what does he begin to show us? In Ephesians here, watch how he draws on these themes in the Old Testament to fill out our hope. Um, going down to verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Look, he's praying for us to know what our hope is. He wants us to see it in our hearts. And, And I think the urgency he puts on this means we might not. This is not just something to be taken casually. This is important to Paul. So what does he go and tell us to see? He wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness. Sorry, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might? That he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Do you hear Psalm 2 in this? That Christ has been raised above all rule, above all authority, above all power and dominion, above every name in this age. And in the age to come, there will be no kingdom to compare to what we will see in the new earth. Every nation will be subject to, underneath, pale in comparison to what we will see in Christ. So when Paul goes to explain what we have given and how God blesses us in eternity, he gives in two steps. This was the first one. All authority is given to Christ. He is raised to be the king above every king, the power above every power, the greatest name you've ever imagined or ever will imagine. And then, step two, he turns and he gives Christ to us. Verse 22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does that mean? He raises Christ to be the head of all things and then gives him to us. That would be confusing if you didn't have in the background the picture of God giving an anointed one to his people. But doesn't this sound like what it would be if you were living in Israel and God raises David to be the greatest king you've ever seen and then gives him to you? And all the blessing that comes with David comes to the people who live in David's kingdom. This is what it's like in Gondor, which is Lord of the Rings, when the king returns and sets everything right, and he is raised to be the best king anyone has ever seen, and he's given to the people, and all are blessed by the power and glory and authority and wisdom and goodness of this king. And that's what God intends to do, by giving us Christ to bless us. You can read reading in verses 
Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he reminds us that we are sinners, that we deserved nothing. He's not giving us this because of anything we have done. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Pause there. Sometimes I think when we think of what God has done for us in Christ, that's where we stop. In Christ, he has forgiven us. He has made us alive with him. What more do we need? Right? And, and in a sense, that's true. That is what, that's the greatest thing that we could, that's the best hope we could have in this life. But the passage goes on. Verse 6, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So not only did God intend to forgive us, not only did he intend to give us new life, but he actually raises us with Christ, the one he's given all power and authority to, and seats us with him, which I don't have time to go into that, but what? (laughs) Seats us with him, and then through Christ will show us the immeasurable riches of his kindness for eternity. That's what we receive in Christ, a king who will be greater than any kingdom, who will have all power, all dominion, all authority, so that God can bless us through him for eternity. Just, just go down this imaginative trail with me for a minute. What will that be like? Right, you've seen kingdoms. You've seen nations. You've seen power and authority and dominion. What will it be like when Christ has all of those things? This will be a kingdom greater than Israel under David or Solomon. This will be a kingdom greater than Rome at its peak. This will be a kingdom better than anything J.R. Tolkien could imagine in Lord of the Rings, as good as that is. This will be a kingdom greater than America the land of the free, and the best thing you can imagine about that. This will be a perfected kingdom. When Christ comes, there will be no possibility of war. He will end all of that. There's going to be no strife, no conflict, no opposition party, no 24-hour news cycle, no opinion articles, no disagreement. There'll be nothing to disagree about because everything will be perfected. This will be a world with not only no wars, but no hospitals, no cemeteries, no death, no destruction, no disease, no storms. This is going to be a kingdom where everything around you will be perfected. And when you see everything around you, it will be a display of God's rich kindness towards you. Every step you take, every place you go, everything you see will be there designed to remind you of the great king God has given to rule over this kingdom and the God who's determined to bless you through him. That's what we hope in. Now, quick caveat here. I know some people will push back on ideas like this and say, well, it sounds like you're going to get too excited about the things that we receive and not so be so excited about Christ himself. Or have you ever heard people ask the question, if you could have heaven without Christ... Would you want to go there? Right? And that's a good question. 
Right? That's intending to help us remember, we who are prone to materialism and, and desiring just the benefits we can get from Christ and then forgetting Christ. Right? If you've read the Old Testament, the Israelites did that over and over and over again. Right? So there's a good warning in that. We don't want to begin to imagine what eternity is going to be like and just think about the things. But at the same time, we need to understand who Christ is by the things he's given us to understand him. John Piper gives an illustration on this where he, he, said, he gives an idea of a husband coming home with flowers for his wife. Right? And, and on the one hand, he says it would be wrong if the wife just took the flowers and said, like, these are my favorite flowers. And she, she goes and she cuts them and puts them in the vase and takes pictures and puts them on social media. And then she calls her friends. And meanwhile, her husband is just sitting on the couch watching TV now because she's totally forgotten about him. Right? That's not, that's not how that's supposed to go. That's a problem. But on the other hand, it would be a problem if the husband comes home with, what, with flowers for his wife and she just takes them and throws them on the floor and says, I don't need these, I just want you. Right? That's not how that works either. They go together. Right? The intent of the flowers is her, for her to have a tangible expression of how her husband loves her. And every time she sees the flowers, she should remember, I have a husband who brought me flowers. And when she sees the husband, she should say, this is the man who brought me flowers. And they go together to build up her love for and enjoyment of her husband. And so when we see the benefits that we receive from Christ, the promises that we have of a kingdom and eternity with him, we don't want to see those disconnected from Christ, but we also don't want to see forget them because they have been given to help us understand how great our king is. You know the greatness of a king by the kingdom in which he rules. That's how you understand what it is for him to be wise, for him to be powerful, by what he's able to do, and they go together for us to have a picture of what we are hoping in. But back to my question, how does this picture affect the way that I live tomorrow, the way that I go and show up at work, the way I show up in my relationships? And I think these pictures are essential for that. Because when we're given these pictures, we're given them to hope in tomorrow so that we can walk through the difficulties that we have today. Ephesians 3, I'm not going to go into it today, but it goes on to talk about how the Ephesians are to live towards one another, and it calls them to difficult things, to live with people who are very different from them, and to live with them with grace and with love and with humility because the hope they have in Christ should overshadow all of that. It should make all of the things that are going to be difficult about living with these, these Greeks or these Jews who are legalistic or these Greeks who don't know anything about right and wrong, all of that's going to pale in comparison to the hope that they have coming. And that's what an inheritance can do for you. Right? If you know that you have an inheritance coming one day, then the way you walk through difficult situations today it just changes, right? If the stock market crashes tomorrow, but you know you've got an inheritance, hopefully not in stocks, but an inheritance in gold or something that's unaffected by the stock market, right? then you might have some difficulties living through today. You might have some financial things you have to figure out in the short term, but at the end of the day, you're going to be okay. Because you've got an inheritance coming, and the weight of the stock market crash is going to be affected by that. If you're mistreated at work and your boss doesn't seem to recognize you and you're worried you're not going to get that promotion because you're just in this tough situation, but you know you have an inheritance coming, 
it makes it easier to deal with that today. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be okay. And on the flip side, if you don't have an inheritance coming, then those things are going to matter. The stock market crashes, you've got to figure it out. You're not going to get a promotion at work. You're not going to get the retirement goals that you thought. You're going to have to figure that out. Your house is destroyed by a storm. That's all on you. There's nothing coming to take care of you. Everything today takes on an extra significant weight that makes it harder to deal with, harder to walk through the realities of a fallen world that God has called, called us to walk through if we don't have a picture of our inheritance coming. Now, we as Christians, we know... Right? Everyone in this room, I think you should know that Christ has promised great things for you in eternity. But does that affect the way that you live today? And if not, this would be my guess as to why not. It's not because you don't know that you have an inheritance coming. It's because the picture you have of that inheritance, it's kind of vague. Right? Imagine this. Your inheritance is just, you know, grandma's got some money for you. Some money, right? You don't really know how much. You know, you don't, nobody talks about money in your family. So you know you've got an inheritance, but you don't really know what, you don't have a good idea of what it's going to be. Is that going to affect the way that you live today? Is that going to affect how you walk through repairs after a storm or, or different, difficult financial situations? Probably not, right? If you don't have a clear picture of what that inheritance is, it doesn't have a lot of weight to show up to you today. If your idea of what God has promised for you in eternity is a better place, period, is eternal goodness, period, that's kind of vague. It doesn't surprise me that general ideas like that, when, when I walk through life without a clear idea, without a clear reminder of God's power demonstrated through the way he led a kingdom, demonstrated by the victories he had over all of these enemies, by the way that he blesses, the goodness that he's created. When I don't have tangible pictures of the goodness of God that translates to what the promise of the future is going to look like, it doesn't affect the way that I live every day. My focus becomes only and primarily on what's happening today and what I can do to deal with the rest of my life. We need pictures. We need clear pictures of our hope. More than just riches and goodness, abstract concepts. We need pictures like the Davidic kingdom. So that when we would look and say, any kingdom that you've ever imagined is a picture, just a shadow of what's coming for you in eternity. You need that picture to be big and clear. Not precise. Right? I don't know exactly what a kingdom with no hospitals or media or any of that's going to look like. I, I can't tell you how all the... the details of that work, but the picture is still clear. I can begin to imagine, because I've seen a kingdom, and I've seen the story of how he led through David and the prosperity through Solomon that begins to whet my appetite for the hope I have coming in eternity. And it's not only the picture of a kingdom that we are given, right? I don't, I'm not going to trace all of these through, but just begin to imagine. Christ is also called the new Adam, He's a new kind of human. If you remember back when we talked about 2 Peter, 2 Peter says that we will become partakers of the divine nature, the kind of people. We're still going to be human, tangible on a new earth, but we're going to be different. We're going to become like Christ. Can you just begin to imagine what it would be like to live for eternity, never at odds with yourself? 
never conflicted about wanting to do the right thing and not wanting to do it at the same time. That won't ever happen. That's a picture of what it's going to be like in eternity, what we're hoping for. God promises rewards for him. He doesn't just ask us to follow and walk through difficult things because it's the right thing. He says he is the God who sees in secret and will reward you tangibly, physically, as he's done for all of his people through all of the stories that we've watched. There are rewards coming for what we are doing now. We'll become part of God's family. We won't just be sitting in a coffee shop talking to somebody who's, who's our great hero. We will be the bride of Christ, the sons of God. We'll be drawn into his family. You know what a family is like, and so you can begin to imagine and then have your mind blown as you try to think, what would it be like to relate to the Trinity as your family. These are pictures that are meant to give us hope, to give us endurance, to make the difficulties of this life truly not worth comparing with the clear, tangible hope that we have coming, that we will receive forever in Christ. And so I think these pictures are essential for us. Um, so I hope next week we're going to come back and begin to see some of the difficulties I'm talking about in what Christ calls us to. I'm going to pick up on the idea that Christ is the great uniter of things that seem disparate. It seems like it would be very difficult to unite some of these concepts, so I hope to come back and join us next week. Thanks.